Alright, today is Sunday, November 15th, 2015, and this is episode 139 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. I'm I'm extremely happy that we now have a bingo game based on... That is epic. Yeah. I had no idea. Uh, I mean... You know, you've arrived when someone builds a buzzword bingo game around your podcast. It's true, though. I could completely screw it up just by reading all the buzzwords right now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I assume that was just a representative of one one particular <laughs> card. I'm, I'm assuming there's many, many more. So, like In theory, you would want randomization, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But I got to say, uh, Phil Campbell put this together for us. We retreated it, and uh, that's awesome. And <laughs> to think somebody took the time to do that is pretty stunning and, and, and much appreciated. And Our silly little show is inspiring stuff like this is, is kind of kind of humbling. Indeed. So uh, before we get started, the, uh, the, I just want to remind everybody that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employer or bingo cards. That's true. So, or any possible sponsor, because we pissed them all off. That's that's very true. <laughs> all right. So uh, we're, we're failing that whole monetization uh, plan. Yeah. yeah you know, that's step that's step three the, of profit. The venture capitalists are steering very clear of us. <laughs> but hey, we we uh, even though it's internet points. And even though it's unfathomable, and I cannot figure it out, we did peak at number five in the overall list of technology podcasts on iTunes. I know. That was crazy. Which is pretty wild. Of course, we immediately then dropped to 23. So go, And then the other day, we're at 52. So I have no idea how that works or why that works, or, but it was pretty wild. There's, a, there's some podcast barons that... That are holed up in a in a smoky smoke filled room at, at Apple headquarters, and they just monkey with ratings all day long. Apparently, so though uh, that that does make us for a very brief period of time the number one rated information security podcast on iTunes. That's right, for at least eight or ten minutes. Yeah, and then maybe, they, maybe then it they, was fifteen minutes, and then they fixed the glitch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> kicked us back down where we belong. All right, so we should probably, you know, <laughs> do do some stories. It's true. So, true. Um, we have a we've got kind of three three for this uh, this week, mm-hmm. and uh, first one is from Bloomberg. So, and we talked a little bit about this last time, but you'll think about think back to I think it was last year when J.P. Morgan was the the victim of a major breach and at the time again it was it was uh it was pretty well thought to be the work of russian russian affiliated or russian government affiliated hackers and nobody really could explain why russia would want you know 86 million uh you know mortgage holders contact information but you know aside from that that aside 
but uh, clearly it had to be nation state. But it was yes. Well, I mean, the sophistication was such that mm-hmm. it had to be nation state, right? Uh, how? What else could it have possibly been? Uh, the, really, nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, there's a, a a series of of stories this week that that really kind of shatter the 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 story here wide open. And uh, so the first one comes from Bloomberg, and the title is J.P. Morgan's 2014 Hack Tied to Largest Cyber Breach Ever. And this is kind of a great overview of the whole, you know, the whole program here. Um, it, effectively, there were three main, quote, ringleaders who were operating a gigantic fraudulent, you know, pump and dump stock fraud slash um, you know, fraudulent credit card processing slash illegal Bitcoin exchange. And um, it was quite a sophisticated operation. And, uh, you know, basically these these uh, criminals or alleged criminals uh, were buying small you know, penny stocks and then they would pump and dump. Uh, but apparently that wasn't enough, right? So what they what they decided they needed to do was to target their messages more, right? So the, in order to do that, they figured, well, we really should focus on active investors. Well, who are do we find active investors? Well, we find them in the databases of E-Trade and JP Morgan and Dow Jones and Scottrade. Look, I don't understand why you're so upset. They were just doing really effective targeting marketing. I, I mean, yeah, it was like a, it's, it, it's it practically a focus study, right? A focus I, group. They knew their market. Yeah. So, uh, so they they hired apparently, and this kind of dovetails into the second story, which comes from uh, Trust.org, which is the Thomson Reuters Foundation website, which basically says that uh, these three people that we just mentioned uh, were not actually the hackers themselves. Um, they were they, they kind of um, you know oversaw the the enterprise, as it were, which apparently consisted of hundreds of people, uh, seventy-five a network of 75 global companies that they had set up in order to move money around. Um, and uh, they had outsourced the hacking of all of these financial institutions to get contact information and then, in turn, spam those people with, uh, you know, with leads on, uh, on on penny stocks. So the theory is they buy a crapload of, of penny stocks, which is really low-cost stocks that are not traded on the major exchanges. Then they get all this contact information, send out uh, basically whatever to induce and entice other people to buy the stock, therefore boosting the stock price, and then they sell. That's right. Which is all sorts of illegal in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. and, and, and it gets, it gets worse too, because they, um, you know, they were, they had kind of a, a full cycle ecosystem here. They were not only doing the pump and dump, they were also actually working with, uh, you know, I don't know what she would call them, right. But, you know, advisors to some of these penny stock companies, encouraging them to either go public or to merge with other you know, existing public, uh, public companies, at, you know, in in the context of their stock scams. I mean, it was this was a sure. gigantic business. 
So again, now they're just being activist investors, which is what you know a lot of people do. Yeah, I mean, like Carl Icahn, right? All right, there you go. I, look, I, again, this is capitalism, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, it was. It, it it's it's really fascinating. The thing that that struck me is uh, as I was reading uh, this these these really three stories. The, the third one comes from Krebs on on security. And uh, he's talking about uh, something I'll get into in a second, but it, it really strikes me as uh, is disturbing slash interesting that y- you've got this really sophisticated network of of you know a, a criminal organization that is you know completely in the private sector, right? And things that I think you know, maybe a year ago would have only been thought possible in in the context of some super sophisticated uh, nation state attack is in fact attached to really not much more than a, you know a, a a financial fraud operation a big one sure but so you know we kind of glossed over it and I want to circle back on the outsourcing aspect because I think that's pretty interesting and and very very worth discussing. So they, according to the story, reached out and basically hired out these hacks. In other words, they sort of solicited people said, hey, we want the customer contact list from major financial companies. And various um, black hat hackers basically said, sure, we'll take the gig. Right. And delivered on that. And as far as we know, uh, the people arrested uh, haven't given up those, uh, those names yet. Yeah, and in the indictment, which is actually linked off of the the Krebs on Security article, they call it uh, uh, cons- criminal conspirator number one. <laughs> so, uh, pretty pretty interesting. Uh, so, th- going back to the Krebs on Security article for a second, mm-hmm. uh, one of the one of the apparently fairly significant aspects of their business, uh, which apparently they used to help launder the money they were making was a, uh, a, a you know, basically a credit card processing organization. And this was intended to accept transactions from uh, online pharmaceutical sales and, and um, you know, the, the bogus antivirus, scareware antivirus. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting that, you know, the, the, Banking industries, as you might expect, has gotten pretty robust, and in fact, they hire out uh, organizations to to help pinpoint this kind of fraud, right? And so, so that they want to make sure banks aren't accepting transactions from these kinds of fraudulent organizations. And so, uh, companies like G two Web Services are actually contracted by organizations to to basically buy stuff through spam that's advertised through spam and other and and other means and then they kind of trace back where the transaction is being processed ultimately back to uh, the originating bank and then the card brands go and they they punish those card brands or the, the the issuing banks for accepting the transactions well so what i'm learning here is that at a minimum if i start spamming out crap stuff for sale at least these fraud intelligence firms will buy it from me. At, at least that's right. <laughs> if no one else will, so uh, good. Good to know. I'll, yeah. I'll make a note. There you go. So, um, 
knowing that this was going on, um, these these uh, three you know, criminals uh, ordered up a hack of G two, and and so they were for a period of time, not really sure exactly how long this was going on for, but they were actually monitoring the comings and goings of G two. So they were basically trying to figure out, and apparently they did, what card numbers that G two was using in order to try to buy these, you know, the, the, the things that advertised through spam and whatnot so that they could actually reject the transactions. The idea being, you know, if, if these organizations that are looking for the fraud can't see that the fraud is happening, that it's being, you know, it's kind of being obscured. And on the, on the other end, uh, they talk about how this, uh, you know, the, these organizations, the, the, fraudulent organizations are just completely lying through their teeth about the business that they're in. They're reporting the transactions as being pet supplies and, and things like that, completely unrelated to what they actually are. And, um, you know, act surprised if they get, they get called out. Now, another thing that really surprised me, and this is, um, very, very surprising is that again, these banks would periodically be fined by the card brands and when that happened apparently this org this uh criminal organization would actually repay the banks the the, the amount that they were fined so that they would continue doing business with them really really interesting uh very interesting stuff which would tell you that they're making far more money than the fines which makes for an ineffective fine yeah, and I, mean, I think some of the fines were in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it sounds like um, these guys were making hundreds of millions of dollars. So is... the other thing I've learned here is that I should start reacting to those pump and dump stock steams because clearly they're working. So if somebody else is pumping them, I should jump on that bandwagon. You just got to get out before they get out. That's all. Right. Hmm. Yeah. I got to rethink all my investment strategy. <laughs> I've, I've been going about this all wrong. Yeah, I, I, you know, as as defenders, I think the the thing that is really important to take away from this is, uh, you know, number one, there's a lot of money in this stuff. There's a lot of creative people who are determined to you know, to, to use their creativity to make money illegally, and this is a great example, I think, of you know how that how that can play out, right? And so. You know, here's a here's a case where they got caught. You know, how many more of these kinds of things are are going on? We, we you know we don't necessarily know. I think these guys were actually pretty careless when you when you look at their op, opsec. I mean, they were bragging on forums about you know all of their all the stuff that they were doing. I can imagine if they didn't brag, probably would have uh, might not be talking about them here. So yeah, it's possible. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing. The other thing I would say is that if you're in any sort of anti-fraud business, you you know, did, what was G2 Web Services? What was their security like? Did they have the concept that they might be targeted? They think they were just off the radar. Yeah. yeah. Apparently there was an interview. Uh, according to Krebs, there was an interview they, they did a, a couple of months back separately about applying artificial intelligence to detecting fraudulent transactions. And, um, and apparently they made a comment that the, 
the person they were interviewing made a comment about you know how they were themselves were the target of uh, you know ha- having to defend themselves against these attackers. So, um, but you know, take again takeaways. There's a lot of money in this stuff, right? It's not all nation state. Um, a lot of these hacking you know, techniques are or, or resources are available for for hire, right? You don't you don't have to um, you don't have to have someone who's a genius, you know, to get into your network because they can hire it out. They, this has become very commodity type stuff. So, um, you know, really kind of beware. And I think the other thing too is understanding the utility behind your data, right? So I don't think going looking back, a lot of these organizations probably didn't think about, you know, their data being stolen for this purpose. Certainly. And, and that is a huge point that I wanted to make as well is, is sometimes the reason behind a breach or, or data uh, being stolen is not immediately apparent. But it doesn't mean there isn't a good reason. Yes, exactly. And I remember when this originally happened, we were speculating this was Russian intelligence and this was and all sorts of stuff. And uh, something far more mundane, but certainly far more profitable, turned out to be the case. Yep. And it, it comes back again and again to our lack of, of imagination. And, and the bad guys are incredibly imaginative. And clearly, this is probably not the only instance of this going on. And the bad guys get smarter each time. Usually, well, the I think, ones. yeah, they. I mean, I think they're learning from each other, mm-hmm. and you know, the the other interesting thing too is those, you know, that that uh, criminal co-conspirator is is not apparently identified. So, I, I, it's not clear that law enforcement actually even knows who it is. So, I will say, I did notice Bob was driving a new Mercedes the other day. <laughs> Yeah, I thought he. I thought he was just getting a new job, but uh, maybe. Hmm. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. I- interesting. I'll I'll have to uh, have to have have a talk with Bob. Be careful. He might have some very powerful Russian friends now. That's a good point. Uh, it it is a, a wild story, and I'm sure the SEC is not happy, and. Uh, yeah, this may have some more interesting implication for how much money they were making. Yeah, I, I, one of the one of the articles I saw said somewhere north of three hundred fifty million dollars. So, did we ever learn how the actual breaches occurred? Like where the failure was on J.P. Morgan and such for what allowed the data to be exfiltrated to begin with? Yeah, we talked about that. Uh, I guess a month or two, maybe three months ago. Mm-hmm. I, my recollection was it was uh, was somebody got fished, right? Which was the beginning stages. Yeah, but did the, I don't recall if we ever got into what happened from then. Was it you know, I, password I, reuse of an admin? Was it? Be, I, and here's where I'm going with this. We know that a lot of things start with phishing, but that's usually only the first stage of. I'm not going to use the the term you hate. The first stage of the attack, <laughs> and the takeaway for me. Or, or the lesson learned here for me is how do we start monitoring for and trying to stop that um, linked event series, I won't use the term, uh, before we get to the point of exfiltration? 
or spotting it as the exfiltration happens. And this is something I think we suck at right now uh, as, as, a, as a discipline. I, I, I think generally we're unwilling, as an industry, we, I think we're unwilling to take the steps necessary to, to do that. You know, because it's 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 resource intensive and it's painful and it's expensive and on and on. But you know, ultimately, that's what it, you know. It, it this stuff is hard, right? It's there's there isn't a little blinky box that you can put in that's going to detect that. You know, so well, I think we need to make one. I see a business plan, <laughs> or at least sell one that claims to do it. <laughs> right? Data exfiltration detection system. Yeah. Deeds. There you go. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that you are absolutely right. There's, there's the, one of the problems is this is, it's such a diverse, you know, kind of possibility tree. Once, once you have that initial intrusion, you know, the, the way in which people can, you know, can go through an environment is just, unfathomably large you know Absolutely. It's, and so you have to but, you have to look for what are the common things common attributes that you can look for yeah agreed and that you know probably bears a whole show to discuss in and of itself i guess my my point that i'm kind of hinting at is we've got to move beyond just trying to stop fishing and you know having that be the entire focus of our strategy and say okay once we have been fished what are they going to do then and start looking for those indications yeah as yeah. best we can. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying we're still getting our ass kicked. <laughs> as, as is apparent by relatively low, uh, I mean, I'm not going to say low skill, but, you know, unsophisticated business models. Yeah. So um, it's, you know, that's a that's a tough nut. Um, I, I really do think that we've got to get better at the whole exfiltration detection. I mean, there's... Just no, uh, no, no two ways about it. You know, un- until we have systems that we, you know, th- that affirmatively are going to stop this kind of stuff, which I'm not sure reasonably can exist uh, in in a in a business environment. And maybe someday they can. I don't know. We're, when we're you be... say when you say systems, you don't mean blinky boxes. You mean sets of controls, correct? Ways of doing business. Okay, right. Right, the the environment is set up in such a way that avoids this or or affirmatively prevents it from happening. Um, I, you know, we're we're going to be in the position of having to look for evidence and and trying to stop it as fast as it can. Now, you know, the thing, one of the things that that is concerning to me somewhat is the concept of you know trying to uh, trying to detect the exfiltration as early as you can because. You know, in 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 all reality, it doesn't take that long to exfiltrate the data. And so, you know, if you're if if you're only looking for, I mean, yeah, you might see the blip of uh, you know a, a gigantic file being transferred out of your organization, and it's great that you can see it and you can you can go react, but it's gone at that point. So, I think the 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 more high value or, or higher order value is detecting the lower noise floor activities that happen lead up leading up to that. Yeah, certainly. And and I you know, here's the frustrating part too. Let's say we get effective at spotting 
an 80 percentile common technique once a fishing a successful fishing attack has been established and they've got the beachhead it is not that difficult for the attackers to shift techniques right to a different technique so then it comes back to okay what can we do with the data and and sort of start to really put a bastion around that data and really watch use of that data and that's kind of where i start to think about it if if we've know a certain target of data is being attacked, a certain class of data. Perhaps there's different things we could do to monitor that data better. You know, how often does the entire customer database need to be copied off? Maybe a lot in your environment. I don't know. Maybe not that much. I don't know. But that might be an interesting thing to watch for. Yeah. I think it comes down to knowing what is normal business behavior in your environment and trying to baseline that and then spot anomalies off that normal behavior, which is really easy to say and really hard to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and probably also prone to a lot of false positives. Absolutely. And, and this isn't something you could do with folks who have you know, 10 minutes a day to tune a system. You've got to hire folks that all they do is care about this sort of problem and, and free them from the, from the you know, care and feeding of anything else and the other fire drills. And the, the, this is a really labor-intensive, really smart person process. It's not something you can just throw some technology at and call it a day. So, you know, which kind of leads to a question, and this is a very uncomfortable question, I think, for us in in this industry. You know, is it worth it? I think that's a company-by-company company decision. Yeah, I suppose so. You know, if we take a step back and we look at, let's just pick J.P. Morgan for a moment, we'd have to ask them. Let's say they could... And, of course, we're always fighting the last war, the last breach. But let's say in this particular instance, just to play perfect knowledge, they had hired three people at fully loaded cost of two hundred grand a year and gave them a budget of $500,000 a year. So now we're up to $1.1 million per year to watch for their customer database being stolen. Then we need to compare that to what is the cost to J.P. Morgan men for this breach in terms of goodwill, in terms of customers, in terms of legal expense, in terms of, of fraud investigation, in terms of remediation, in terms of all that stuff. Right. Don't and know. that's only for one instance of an attack vector. You know, and then take into account whether or not they have, quote-unquote, cyber insurance to pay them back for those costs. Right. And this is a very, very, very tough question. Well, it is because, you know, it, if, if you are going to be subject to, you know, 10 successful attacks a year and each one of those attacks costs, you know, 2 million or 3 million bucks, it's an easy answer. But, you know, that's knowledge that you don't have when you make that decision. So you've really got to, you've really got to think about, you know, what kind of risk tolerance do you, does your organization have? And are you, you know, <laughs> It's a tough. It's it's a tough knot because you're, if you're spending money on this, you're not spending it somewhere else. Yep. And um, I, I'm I'm not convinced that a lot of companies actually have the ability, you know, to to do that. And so they're just kind of, ex, you know, either knowingly or unknowingly accepting risk. And you know, one of the things I think that drives a lot of people crazy is they're accepting risk of other, you know, the loss of other people's data. So. 
And that comes back to fundamentally long, long, long term, what companies we choose to work with as consumers and customers and businesses and such. Yes. Yep. So anyway, enough of that happy thought. Yeah. Let's move on to our next happy thought, which comes from the consumerist. So um, apparently there's an airport in France called Orly, I believe it is. I, don't, I, I get the sense this isn't a large airport. Uh, but apparently they were not able to land planes and, and uh, allow planes to take off and land for a period of time. Because a piece of software that uh, is uh, relatively important, especially, I guess, when it's foggy or, or there's reduced visibility, there's a piece of software that, I guess, communicates visibility information to pilots. Um, you know, I read this a little differently. I All think right, it was, go ahead. Okay. So what they're talking about is RVR, runway range visibility, basically, okay? And in essence, you have these light systems, if you will, that are set up down the runway, and it's measuring the opaqueness of the visibility so that you can give part of the weather to departing and arriving aircraft of, uh, you know, ceiling and visibility. So, and certain aircraft and certain types of landing classification have to have a minimum amount of forward visibility uh, to land and depart. And certain aircraft and certain operations are equipped for, and certain airports are equipped for lower than more. So when you don't have good RVR, uh, in essence, you have to assume the worst that there's, because you had fog in the area, it wasn't a clear day. They didn't have a reliable way of um, knowing that. And what the way I read this from my research is that the system that went down was running those RVR systems and then giving that out to another system which communicated the, the full weather report. Oh, okay. So it was just running the RVR sensors is, is the way I think this was, and it went down. Yeah. And, and uh, Orle is actually a, a big airport. It used to be Paris's main airport. Uh, it, 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 you know, Orle and Charles de Gaulle are the two airports now in Paris. Um, so it's, it's one of the busiest for domestic traffic and second busiest French airport uh, in terms of uh, overall passenger, 27 million passengers in 2011. Wow. Okay. So it's a big airport. That's a big airport. Big commercial airport, yeah. I, I was envisioning something much smaller. Okay. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's it's a big one. Um, it's it's kind of like Midway and O'Hare sort of setup. Ah, uh, okay. But not, not as equal, uh, you know. But, you know, O'Hare uh, being Charles de Gaulle and Orlais being Midway, but probably a little more diversified in terms of actual traffic. But Got it. But anyway, so... Key system can't measure the visibility on the runway, can't tell arriving and departing aircraft what that visibility is, so people can't make decisions of whether or not it's safe to land or take off. Nice. And and uh, so so that system went down, and apparently there are three technicians in uh, in all of Paris who are qualified to work on that system, and apparently one of them is getting ready to retire. And and. Well, I, I guess it must run really well. I mean, I, I can only assume that it's very stable and runs very well because it it runs on Windows three point one. Now, is that is that like a, a new version of of Windows ten? Well, I, mean, I, I was thinking like thirty one, right? Windows thirty one must be really wow. advanced. But no, actually, <laughs> three point one, uh, the one that was uh, that went out of support what twenty years ago. That is amazing. Uh, but you know, I bet this is fairly common. 
Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe not entirely common, but this is one of those things that if it doesn't work, don't fix it. You know, if it doesn't break, I should say. If it works, don't don't mess with it. And we hear this a lot, like Windows XP right now on medical devices and that sort of thing. But, man, this is the risk of having really old systems. Yeah, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about this in the past. When when you – and I think, honestly, this is the – this is the conflict between commodity IT and industrial type systems where industrial type systems are expected to be relatively long-term investments they're intended to be stable and more or less you know just kind of work and i i think that over time there's been a bleeding or blending of the two and it doesn't really work. You know, so for those of us on the IT side and the security side, we kind of look at this and say, well, you know, <laughs> what a bunch of dopes. Um, but I think from the other, the other side, the expectation is that, you know, this is a system that you're not intending to replace every five years. Right. And I, and I, I fully expect that's kind of how they got here. I'm not defending it. However, no, it's almost completely understandable. Uh, they're treating it like an embedded system. They're treating yeah. it like uh, a purpose-built embedded system, which makes sense. But fundamentally, from a from an operational standpoint, you have to take into account the serviceability of a key system, whether it's embedded or not. Right. And you know, if it's a critical system, you've got to have a backup plan. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming they had a second three point one. I don't know. <laughs> it was. Uh, it, it it is a it is an interesting and odd story that you know this it's a and by the way I think it's also notable to say that where everybody's pointing at this and laughing but it's not actually clear that Windows three point one had anything to do with the problem right it's that you know it, it's a system that runs on Windows three point one that had a problem so correct correct I think the bigger issue here is that the antiquated system also probably indicates really antiquated hardware right. and really, really uh, rare skill set. I can only imagine that the reason it went down was because it was probably jam-packed full of dust. <laughs> can you imagine that? A Windows well, 3.1 system still running. You open that thing up, what are you going to see? Hey, you don't know. They might have a, like an annual dusting plan. <laughs> annual it could be dusting. part of their process. Uh, but you know, this brings up a key point that that's probably going to piss off some people. I think of this very similar to when somebody comes into a, an enterprise organization and says, I can build an open source based system to do X, Y, Z. The problem with that is exactly this. If, if it's a rare or obscure or heavily customized open source system that only one or two or three people know how to run and you're reliant upon it for your business, you're putting yourself at risk. Yeah. And you have to understand and accept that risk before you go down the easy button of Bob, not our Bob, but you know, Bob, the system in just built something based on random. It doesn't mean there's, isn't a lot of open source stuff out there. that's heavily known, right? Linux, heavily, heavily, heavily known. And it's open source. Got no problem with that. But I'm saying really obscure stuff or heavily customized stuff, you put yourself at risk of not being able to maintain it and fix it later. Yeah. Well, and, and here we are. And that is why companies buy 
enterprise class commercial software so that they always have a third party to go to. Whether, whether it makes sense or not, that is a safety blanket for a lot of executives. Yeah, but, but again, Microsoft, I mean, Windows 3.1 is, you know, is, a, is from well, a pretty major company. But it's been out of life and end of supported for a long, 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 long time. So running end of life and out of support software is also a risk. Yeah, I, I I guess I can't help but think that if if the context were different, and let's say this was a system running on a thirty year old mainframe, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be laughing, we wouldn't be pointing and laughing at it. Perhaps, but it's kind of like Fortran, right? Things running on thirty year old mainframes run Fortran, and the Fortran skill set was lost for or a co- lot of people. Or COBOL. Or COBOL, sure. Or MBS. Or, yeah. 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 And people had to go get trained up on that to run that gear. And you, you're right. There's a Windows 3.1 point and laugh aspect. But I'm trying to bring it up a level to say that you still have to think about the supportability of whatever it is you're running your business on. Yes, I agree. And that's where I think they, they made a mistake here. Yeah. Um, but I wonder how easy that mistake is to make, though. Oh, I think it's easy. But our job is to try to make people smarter, right? True. So, and I'm not saying it's an easy... I, I, I'm, I would wager that this airport and operations folks have looked at swapping out the system many times. Yeah. Uh, it's not like they were oblivious to this risk, most likely. It's not been addressed in the articles, but that's my gut. It's not like they're, they're deaf, dumb, and blind to this issue. They know it. But it could be all sorts of reasons why. It could be funding, could be all sorts of things as to why this isn't being replaced. Right. Especially when you look at you know airports and public funding and that sort of thing. Uh, may not be something they could have replaced. But I'm saying if you do have control over these things, it's a reason why we, we say it's such a big deal to, especially now in an internet-connected world, not run out of support gear from a, from a vulnerability patch alone. 3.1, I'm not worried about anybody hacking into a 3.1 box. Uh, that's not the concern here. The concern is if your business relies on it and it goes down, what are you going to do? Right. Right. We don't even know this thing's connected to a network. So I, I doubt it is. It's probably very local. Uh, it probably hands off maybe some data via serial to something else, just right. the, the RVR data. But uh, And if you want to keep old crap up and running, great. But But account do a risk analysis of if this breaks how long is it going to take to fix can i absorb that downtime do i need to have a backup hot standby ready to go in the meantime and 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 account for this problem that you may not be able to get parts you may not be able to get people you may not be able to get support from a vendor that's the point i'm trying to make which is um, we have gotten ourselves into a situation where the vendors can force us to keep upgrading because we are reliant upon their support Indeed, you're right. So, anyhow, I, I went off on a wee bit of a rant there, but so yeah, three point Windows three point one control in your airport. There you go. <laughs> and by the way, if it hadn't been foggy, this would not have been a problem. Right. Yep. So, all right. Well, you know, there it is. So our, our last story for this evening comes from SecurityAffairs.co, and the title is. Fakben is offering a professional ransomware as a service that relies on a new CryptoLocker ransomware, which can be downloaded through the executable file, which obviously not 
English as a first language here, but um, the the thing that is very interesting to me here is that uh, now anybody has the uh, you know has the opportunity to be their own you know cyber criminal for the low low price of I think fifty dollars. Uh, so, so for 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 a minimal investment, you can sign up to a service and customize your own version of CryptoLocker by uh, you know by setting the the ransom and providing a Bitcoin address for uh, you know for the people who will pay you, and uh, and this organization will package it up, and apparently there's also some like added options. Uh, related to um, you know different exploitation techniques, so you know those are those are more expensive upgrades, if if you will, to the to the package, and uh, and then you can you know it's up to you to distribute it either through your favorite email client or you know your the magnitude exploit kit that you bought, whatever. Right uh, now you are empowered to run your own ransomware campaign, uh, and this service actually will collect the money, take 10%, and pass the rest on to your Bitcoin address, which is absolutely fantastic and scary as hell, right? Because this stuff is getting to be so commodity. I mean, we, we're we not doing a very good job at defending against the ones that are you know actually coming from people who are writing it themselves. And now here is an opportunity for any Tom, Dick, and Harry to you know, run their own attack and, uh, holy cow. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, and this is what we're getting to, you know, again, doesn't need to be state sponsored. No, no. of course this could be being run by the state and we don't know that. <laughs> True. This, this could be how North Korea is making money these days. You don't know. I, I, I don't know. You're right. Mm-hmm. So um yeah I I think the I think this really points to a a concerning trend that we we really do need to do a better job about malware defense and um you know I I know a lot of organizations are getting hit with CryptoLocker and we talked about we we talk a lot about this and I know this is one of the bit I think this is one of our uh, bingo squares so you know. It may very well. Uh, related bit, uh, sorry, related crypto locker news. Apparently, a variant came out for Linux that was badly written and used the same encryption key, and so it can be easily decrypted. Well, actually, what it did was it, um, it it seeded the random number generator that derived the key based on the system time. So all you had to do is go back and look at the the modification time of the first file that was encrypted and then you can actually generate the decryption key. Well, there you go. Which is which is awesome. <laughs> so even even the bad guys make mistakes is what we're saying. Yeah. Often. Cuz by the way, good cryptography is hard. <laughs> that's right. That's 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 what we're trying to point out here. Uh, yes. But, that's right. But, but yeah, it's and I think CryptoLogger is getting uglier and uglier and and clearly is I'm waiting for the first crypto locker to hit a phone. Yeah. Well, there's been uh, there's there's been a fair number of one lookalikes, I guess, that will tr- that will attempt to to appear to lock your phone, 
right? But right. I don't think it actually does. Yeah, not not to this level. But they'll, uh, I mean, eventually it'll get there, I think. Yeah, especially when you start the, hey, we're going to leak your most private sexting out to the world kind of threats. Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> Look I'm, out. I'm going to delete all of our private chats, Jerry. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. This will be uncomfortable. <laughs> anyway... That is our show for this week. Uh, thank you again for listening, and uh, thanks for uh, for again for everybody who who has donated to our Patreon campaign. I can't say thank you enough. And um, if you like the show, give us you know some a review on on iTunes. That will you know help our uh, our internet points. You know that's that's always welcome. You can find links to all the stories we talked about on our show uh, and uh, all of our back episodes on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. Follow Mr. Khaled on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we'll talk again next week. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. And they're not even nation states. Imagine that. I, you know, I'm I am still a little skeptical that they're not nation state. I, I think they've been disavowed. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I think I think North Korea just said, "You're on your own, guys. You got caught." <laughs> that's, that's what I think. Nice. And uh, and yeah, it you could know. Be. Their their families are being held hostage by the North Koreans, so they're not going to roll on them. They're just going to sit and rot in jail. Absolutely, I think they uh, don't have a choice. No, hmm. that's my theory. I know I'm just an asshole. You you probably are going to have to fire me from the podcast over the controversy. In your in your contract agreement, you know, uh, activities unbecoming a podcaster. Are, are strictly prohibited. Well, yeah, but when you think about that, <laughs> yeah, I know. Doesn't doesn't have a very strong definition behind it. Well, that but that's also the beauty in it. <sighs> so I need to lawyer up, is what you're telling me. Bye bye. Bye bye now. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.